Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Emmanuel Chavez from Totemo coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She's an expert on food, wine, and good times. Felice Sloan, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing good. Hey, 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 everybody. I am excited to be here. Um, I want to kick 2023 off with a bang. And I also want you guys to get on Eric because y'all haven't heard me on here. Okay, let me just start with that. Eric is trying to keep me manless. And also, he's hating on me a little bit. So I'm just saying, I'm just telling y'all. So, right. well, you're it's the first episode of 2023 and you're here. And I'm so thrilled to have you. And okay, we, will, okay. we will explain the manless <laughs> aspect in a little bit. But first, let's dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one Common Bond CEO George Joseph has partnered with El Bolio owners, the Garza Management Group. Uh, as part of this partnership, George Joseph will maintain his title as CEO and his ownership stake or partial ownership stake in the company. But Garza management will oversee day-to-day operations and will try to further grow the brand. Felice, let me let me throw it to you. What do you think about this new partnership? Does the owner of El Bolio seem like a good fit for Common Bond? You know, when you broke the news, I started to think about it. And I'm like, does this make sense? Then, you know, I went down the rabbit hole and started doing a little bit more research. And I think it does. It does for a couple of reasons. Um, far as, because I started thinking, where else can Common Bond go? Because they've grown. Um, I think they've had really good growth at key times um, in their development. So from a business standpoint, I think it's very, very smart and it just kind of puts them in a light of people that are already doing the business. You know, sometimes people make these partnerships that don't make sense to um, breathe new life into the business and things like that. But it's like a partnership where everyone's like, how does that make sense? What do they know about the business? Where is this going? This one, I think, makes sense, though. No, I, I agree with you. And, and I think part of what the appeal was on both sides is that, you know, El Bolio only has three locations, you know, common bond is up to 10 or 11. If you count all Mm -hmm. those drive through on the go types, but the volume that El Bolio does is, is incredible. Yeah. The, the quantity that they serve and, and how big their menu is and, and all of those things. So they understand the logistics side of, bakery operations in a way that maybe common bond none the the former management team maybe didn't have that that level of expertise and frankly you know george joseph who has been uh very good for common bonds growth is is not at his core a restaurant guy you know he he owns these um addiction treatment centers and and that's really always been his core business and he wants to focus on that so you know, bringing in a dedicated team with a lot of experience in, you know, bakery operations, I think could be a real, could be a real boon to Common Bond, 
because there is there is this sort of second aspect of this that I, I want to sort of float by you, which is that, you know, when Common Bond opened, it was this very precious thing. And, you know, Roy Schwarzapel is this unbelievably talented pastry chef. He's known for, you know, there's uh, from Roy Panettone now, but, you know, he had worked at El Bui, he had worked for Thomas Keller, he had worked for Pierre Hermé, you know, top chefs around the world. And he brought all that experience to, to Houston, to Common Bond. And so when it opened, it was like this unbelievably special place. Yeah. And, and now that there's all these other locations around town and, and you know, the, the pastries are made at a central commissary kitchen and they're, they're distributed, you know, it's very trendy to say, oh, it's not as good as it used to be. And and so let me just let me just ask you. I mean, do you accept that premise that Common Bond isn't as cool as it used to be? And does that matter? Yeah. So it's lost this cool factor for the reason that you've said it's all over town, right? It's it's lost that thing, and it's not. They're not um, producing like they did. Everything that you listed is why it's lost its pull factor. However, um, are they still turning out a quality product? Is it? Are they still giving me things that I went to Common Bond for when it was one location? Yes, I still go there. Um, and I don't feel that the quality, I'm missing anything. So to me, that doesn't matter. Um, it'll start to matter when, and I, and I say that when people branch out and they can't, um, reproduce that thing, the thing that they can't reproduce is the cool factor, right? Because, um, everyone else has kind of stepped their game up or you can get what they're doing. So the thing that made them special, it's like, okay, you're a franchise now, right? Like you're every, not a franchise. I'm like, you have multiple locations now. You're not like, just that thing but it doesn't matter it's for me it doesn't matter long as they're turning out quality product and it's consistent but i think one of the things that once they decided to expand and do what they're doing they kind of up the ante on those things so they could continue to get new customers and to stay relevant right i i think that's all very well said right the recipes are the same you know, yeah. e- even if it's not the same crew executing them, even if it's at a at a much higher volume. I mean, you know, when Common Bond first opened, you basically had to go there in the morning because if you tried to get cookies or croissants in the afternoon, they would be sold out. Done. Yeah. Done. And, <laughs> and and they have a they've expanded their menu. Uh, Jason Gold is there who, you know, he's been on the podcast. We know him from from Gravitas. He spent a long time with Cyclone and Nias. So. You know, Jason, you know, is is kind of this link between Common Bond as it has evolved currently and and what it's going to become. And so this idea that like it's not as special as it used to be. You know, if you if you want that like, you know, that like premium croissant experience, you know, that's a little more obscure, you're going to Magnol and lining up on a Saturday morning, or or you're hunting down, you know, the Cafe Louis. Uh, pastries that are now mm-hmm. at uh, that are at uh, Giant Leap Coffee or you know Omar Perrine has launched Love Croissants. He's at Tenfold. You know, there's there's all the like it. It used to be really hard to get a, a good croissant in this town. It's a lot yeah. easier 
and and common bond i think kind of raised the game and, and set a standard and everyone is is sort of meeting that that's that's kind of where that comes from so I agree. so but they are serving you know according to george joseph they're serving 10,000 people a week across all these locations and that that is a volume that roy for all of his ambition like never could have met in one location so i think it's i think it's easy to be in a facebook food group and be like uh it's not as good as it used to be yada 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 but i think they you know they deserve a lot of credit for successfully growing this brand for for getting their operations under control for not running out of core things for for doing simple stuff like you can get a common bond birthday cake now you couldn't do that in the beginning all right. of these things you know i, I say haters going to hate and right. I, I think right. i think <laughs> this right. is a positive this is a very positive development and, and I'm excited to see, you know, there's not a common bond in Katy yet. There's not one in Sugarland. There's not one in Clear Lake. They're in spring, but not the woodlands. They they still have a lot of growth opportunities locally, never mind Austin and Dallas, which are which are also on their radar. Correct. And like you said, and what they've done with the I was having a conversation about common bond weeks um uh, weeks ago with Chef um, Brandy Key because we were talking about um, their tomato sandwich because it's one of my favorite sandwiches. And I'm like, so when I think about Common Bond, I don't think about it just as what I used to think about it as, right? Like, I don't just think about the cookies and the pastries. I think about the sandwiches. And um, I remember when they added supper. So they've evolved into something much bigger than they started out as. So we're not, when you're comparing, you have to compare where they started to where they are now. They've evolved to mo- so much more. And to your point, to 10,000 customers a week. Absolutely. All right. Let us move on to topic number two. Chef Michelle Wallace announced that she has left Gatlin's Barbecue and Gatlin's Fins and Feathers to launch between Sandwich Co., which will start as a pop-up and hopefully evolve into a restaurant. Uh, Felice, I'm I'm going to let you do most of the talking here because I know that you are a huge fan of Michelle's work. So maybe just tell people, what does this mean for Houston? What does this mean for Michelle? You know, I'm so excited for Michelle. I like the one of the things, slow and steady wins the race, right? Like, she has just been developing her skill and um, just figuring out kind of where do I go with this thing, all these things that she, I've, I've learned. You know, she she worked under uh, with Mark Holly back in the day. You know, she's been like um, a chef and fine dining restaurant. Then she started working with Greg and learned that side of the business. Um, and within that, she never lost sight of who she was, right? Like, okay, she she added that aspect of um, fine dining to barbecue with a little smoke. And, you know, but one of her passion projects has always been sandwiches. You and I've talked about this. I think you call her the queen of, you know, the queen of sandwiches. She's always found a way to kind of like set the bar and take a, a sandwich to the next level. And this is so exciting. I'm so excited for her. I'm so excited for Houston. And, you know, sky's the limit. I think about 
when she added that smoked barbecue sandwich to the gallons menu and we had a whole conversation about it, right? Like it, it, it was nostalgic, but it was upgraded and it's, you know, still today it's one of their very popular sandwiches. Um, I expect for her to be doing things like that to the 10th power. Um, you know, I, right. I, I the, just the love The bologna sandwich that they do at Gatlin's, the hot chicken and hot catfish sandwiches she's doing at uh, Fins and Feathers. You've singled out her gumbo as some of the best in Houston. You know, yeah. all of these, all of these dishes that she's created at Gatlin's, you know, now it's time to to go out on her own and and you know launch her own business and and it's just it's tremendously exciting. Yeah, and I in, think she's ready. No, I I think that's right. I think she you know she came to Gatlin's from you know an upscale catering business and and she had worked like you said she worked at Peche she worked at Houston's you know way back in the day so you know, she's got all this great experience and, and she really kind of came into her own, I think, as a chef working with Greg Gatlin. And and now I, you said it right. It's the sky's the limit. And, and we'll see. And you know, her and the first pop-up, I have the date for the first pop-up. So this is oh, like breaking news. This is breaking news. Okay. So the first pop-up is going to be January the 24th location still to be um, announced. But if you follow you follow her on Instagram at Between the Slices, it will be posted there. So, you know, follow her. Let's get to scoop so we can go check out this first pop-up, okay? <laughs> I'm excited. Very good. All right. And then topic number three, Pappas Restaurants has announced that the former Little Pappas Seafood on Shepherd will reopen as Little's Oyster Bar a new restaurant built around sustainable seafood, European wines, especially champagne and caviar. Chef Jason Reichek comes to Houston from San Francisco where he worked at a bunch of really good restaurants. Felice, let me, let me pitch this to you. Were you, were you ever a little Pappas customer? Because I was, and it occupied kind of a special place in my, my dining rotation. I did. I, <clears throat> I wasn't dedicated like you were to it. Um, I loved it. I think it was a great concept because quick, small, in and out, right? Um, so I was kind of like, oh, people are going to be disappointed that it's not coming back. Yeah, I think I think that that's right. I think that, you know, there was something about you could pop over there for a dozen oysters, maybe a cup of gumbo, you know, a fried seafood platter, catfish, shrimp, oysters, whatever. And, you know, not that it was ever cheap, right? Because Pappas restaurants have, have never been an inexpensive proposition, but the portions are always huge. The service is great. It's a comfortable atmosphere. You know, all of those things that I love about Pappas restaurants. And, and you know, it was kind of like fingers crossed they were going to bring some version of that back. And instead they're going in a completely different direction. Now, I will say what they're doing is much more on trend, right? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I'm not going to say it's their version of, but it's, you know, we've seen, you know, sustainability is a huge focus of Gulf Strauman at, at the post, which has gotten a ton of acclaim oysters, caviar, raw bar. That's a big part of what they're doing at, 
Navy Blue, and it's 1751, right? These are kind of our leading seafood restaurants in this day and age. And so, you know, Pappas, which obviously Papa Doe is their most successful concept, you know, if you think about it in terms of number of locations and, and volume and all that, like, you know, they know seafood very well. Yeah. And they have something to say in this area. And that's an ideal venue because it because it is so small, you know, and it is located in, you know, kind of on the border of River Oaks, Upper Kirby, Montrose. You know, it has that affluent clientele. So, you know, I, I think I think the food at Little's Oyster Bar could wind up being really good. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm excited, excited to try it. it. I'm excited to try it. But at the same time, I, I also like I'm slightly bummed that I'm just not going to be able to pop over there for, you know, a fried shrimp platter. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel bad for people. Like I said, I feel bad for people that like loved that, that pop in and all that, but I'm here for, I'm here for the upgrade for the bougie. Um, I'm here for it. And I've been saying it, I've said it on this um, podcast a million times. We need more places like that. Kind of like we talked about Italian and now we're overflowing with Italian restaurants. I would love to see that with little seafood places like this. And I think that we're going to see more in um, 2023 going into 2024. Um, I think this fits the location where it's at, you know, because we have like a lot of new kind of upscale concepts coming in that area. To your point, Navy Blue is one way. Um, that's going to be there. Um, the um, Oyster Bar out of Austin is coming in the area. Right. Clark's is going to be right Clark's down West coming. Alabama. Hudson right. House from <laughs> Dallas is coming to the River Shopping <laughs> Center. Do you see? Right? Like it, it, it makes sense because we need it. And I don't think that everywhere that they're located, it, it's, it's going to be able to pull a pull a group of people because people people love all those things. So I'm excited. I think they'll do well. Um, I hope that they get the menu selections right and, you know, they can play with that, right? Like they'll be able to play with that and see, but yeah, I think they're on to something to be able to pivot because originally they were going to bring the concept back and this pivot is a good pivot. Yeah, I think this this pivot is is on trend and and you're right to point out not just the restaurants that have opened but the restaurants that are opening and and you're right i think you know we we've been in the wave of italian restaurants for the last couple of years and and that's still going but we're about to have you know the wave of oyster bars and and honestly i I think you're right i think that's that's great like let bring it on bring it on (laughs) all right uh, Felice, I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We will be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. Police for our restaurants of the week. I want to talk to you about CL. This is the new French Mediterranean with Japanese influence restaurant. It's opening. It has opened on San Felipe, just inside the loop, right near River Oaks district. This is a very high energy 
kind of place, right? There's there's a singer that performs, there's dancers that performs. If you order a bottle of champagne, they parade it around the restaurant. There's a DJ, there's there's all of these things, but there's also you know, this unbelievable upscale cuisine uh, with a chef that has an incredible resume and cares a ton about, you know, sourcing local produce and sustainable meats and seafood and all that stuff. So, you know, it's, it's trying to do a lot of things at once. Let me throw it to you. What do you think? Like, did, did you enjoy our meal at CL? Okay. So let's just say when, when you're like, let's go there. And I'm like, okay. And I looked at it and I'm like, okay. Cause I like to compartmentalize things. Right. And it just seemed like just looking at it, Eric, I was like, there is a lot going on. Um, there is, that is that well said. There is a lot <laughs> right? going on at CL. I was just like, just looking at it. I'm like, gosh, I, and one of the things they didn't really focus on seeing it socially, unless you looked at like people that were foodies, they didn't focus a lot on the food. So I'm like, Oh God, what's this going to be about? And <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Like we're going to have all this entertainment, but the food's going to be my. So, you know, we go and we get there early, which um, I think is a good thing. If you're a food lover, that's an insider tip to go early. Um, and, you know, chef is working the room and kind of doing his thing. And I, I would have to say I was really impressed with the food, with the service, with how it all came together, even though it was still a lot. Um, the food to me still was the star. Like when I've talked about it and people have seen some of the little clip I put up, they're like, I go, no, no, no. The food, I go, there's a moment, and we'll get into that as we go, because there's a lot to unpack here. But I'm like, there's a moment that my eyes watered because um, our dish was so good. Yeah, I go, I think I'm crying because this is so good. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think that's a good, yeah. I mean, you know, I Joseph Geiskoff is the chef. He, you know, he's worked on the West Coast. He worked in Europe. He's, you know, he worked, he worked for... Uh, a prominent Silicon Valley firm feeding their top executives. I mean, you know, he's just got, you know, I'll, I'll have him on in the next month or two to talk about his career and kind of doing this, but he brings a lot of experience. And, and so, you know, usually when you have that environment, right. With the performances and the bottle service and all that, the food is secondary. Right. And so what's, what's confusing a little bit from my perspective about CL is that they care as much about the food as they do about the atmosphere and the food was great. So, so maybe just talk about just a couple of your favorite dishes, just to kind of give people an idea of what we experienced. Okay. So a couple of favorite dishes and you'll jump in here too. Cause I know you love this dish. Yeah. Yeah. No, do, do, do yours. And then I, I've got a couple. Of okay. Um, the, we started off with some off menu items. And as I said, go early because chef, chef loves to play and that's kind of what they do, right? Like he was like, yeah, you know, we'll be playing around with some stuff. And so the things we started out with, I'm like writing them and Eric's like, yeah, yeah, no, that's not going to be on the, that's not on the menu. 
and then Chef comes out and says he's playing. One of them was um, this caviar with um, watermelon dish. Yeah, oh with tuna God. and watermelon. Listen, listen. <laughs> I'm like, this is how we're starting? This is how we're starting? Okay, okay. Um, that I mean, it was just the the sweetness and the savory and the salty every everything just hit. That was a favorite, and um, the dish that made me cry was um, and I know I'm gonna miss some parts of it, but it was a Japanese sea bass. Yeah, it was the sea bass with spring onions and asparagus in like a kind of Japanese like a like a dashi kind of situation. Right. With a, a miso butter, like that chef added, like right to the end. Listen, I, it was perfection on a plate. Like the sea bass just literally melted in our mouths. Like you could, it, it just hit on every, it was so fresh with the asparagus, the, everything just, came together it was a perfect bite um chef was talking to eric about it and i go i'm sorry i i think i'm I, I'm, I'm sorry i think i'm crying because this is everything you want in a dish like it was perfect and that was just two of the dishes we had about 15 but i knew i was gonna have to narrow it down and give eric time to talk um but those were my two like standout dishes that i keep talking about yeah, the sea bass dish was certainly my favorite. You know, they surprised us with what they called a a foie gras kolache that was also kind of a filled donut hole made with savory brioche. They did, you know, Parisian gnocchi. They did smoked beef tartare. They did truffle fries with actual shaved truffle on top. I even thought, you know, I'm I'm always a little bit skeptical of of sushi and non sushi restaurants, but. But I thought the nigiri were, you know, nicely prepared. I thought the maki yeah. was the yellowtail with the serrano. It's pretty classic stuff at this point, right? It's it's kind of lifting from the the Nobu playbook, but it's a good version, right? Executed very well. They were right. executed very well. Yeah, right. I think that all counts. And then I I think we need to sort of talk about this environment because, you know, we're sitting there having dinner. And all of a sudden, you know, the lights change and the music changes and a woman comes out and sings a song. And and then, you know, she goes away. And then, you know, half an hour later or so, you know, these four dancers come in and they have a routine and they parade through the restaurant and they get up on, you know, it's not exactly a stage, but it's kind of a, a centerpiece mm-hmm. uh, in the dining room and they have a whole choreographed routine. So, and then if you watch sort of videos that they post online, you know, at some point, everybody gets sparklers and, and dances around and it's lively, you know, as as Mary, uh, Mary Clarkson, you know, who's who's on the show regularly said to me, it's dinner and a show. But but we were there, you know, we we happened to run into, you know, another another friend of ours who's in the media who was there with friends who, who looked at us and said, this place doesn't make sense. So let me ask you, does it make sense? So um, it doesn't make sense. But in the, all the best, so it doesn't make sense in all the best ways because I found myself, I really had a good time, right? Like if I wanted, you know, like where you're having a great meal and you may like leave and go somewhere else, oh, let's go have a drink. 
let's go do something a little more energetic, I would stay there because of the vibe and the people watching. Um, speaking of Eric, how's your neck feeling? Y'all, I thought Eric's, Eric's neck is probably hurting because he really enjoy his people watching. I'm going to leave it right there. It is a very well-dressed crowd. And I, you know, within the bounds of being a respectful adult, I, some of the outfits caught my eye and I lingered just politely without, very without, politely. Comment, without, without any comment or, you know, I just, that would be correct. That would be correct. That would be correct. Right. Respectfully, <laughs> politely, passively, silently enjoying the atmosphere. But I'm very observant. So, you know, I'm like, hey, Eric, I'm over here. I'm over here talking to you. Right. Now, you did say to me that you would be open to being taken on a date to CL and that it would probably get whoever took you out a second date. Oh, definitely. It would definitely just because, um, like, they've, they've dropped a little coinage and... You know, they thought about it. They thought about, oh, okay, this may be a first date. It's not going to, it'll be a little fun. So they definitely would get a second date, right? Now, that's it. They didn't get nothing else if they're expecting. I'm like, yeah, that's not that. But they would get a second date. <laughs> and I actually had a date. And I told Eric, I go, listen, I canceled my date for this. This better be worth it. And I would happen to say it was worth it. I had a great time. One of the things that I see, and we, I think we were talking about the, Eric said the champagne, and they do this big thing when someone orders champagne. I see this being a great place to celebrate your birthday. We saw birthdays being celebrated because it looks like they were, it was so much fun. Um, someone that I follow on social media actually had a birthday party there um they took their friend was having a birthday party there and they were on the thing on the stage up celebrating but that's it's it's a whole thing so if you are like a food person and you're like uh i don't want to deal with the scene go early and i think kind of be out of there by like 11 o'clock 11 ish because then that's when they say it turns up from like 11 to 2 because they they serve food and they go to two a.m. So if oh, that right. they serve know. they serve food until about eleven eleven thirty. Yeah, and then the bar stays open until two. So if you want the kind of you know if you want the very refined cuisine and very little of the atmosphere, you know five thirty six o'clock start you know have an early dinner. You'll be out of there by eight. You'll miss most of the show. If you want a balance. You, you know, you want that you want the good food, but you also want to see what it's all about. Seven thirty, eight o'clock, probably. And and if all you care about is the scene, then show up, show up whenever, show up, show up after ten. Stay, stay till, stay till closing. Correct. So that's where I think that how you just laid that out. That is where they're going to be successful, right? Because they're going to have those crossovers. They're going to have the folks that want to kind of kind of see like, well, I want to see what it's about. And then when we were leaving, I remember, because I think I told Eric, I go, I don't think you can get in here if you don't have reservations. Um, but the, so the door guy, these guys, they parked 
and the guys were coming in, and he goes, you have a reservation? And they're like, absolutely not. We're just here going to the bar. And they were, and that was about time people would start going to the bar, and they let him in. So I'm like, okay, I could see those different um, groups of people and them being able to service all that, be all things to everybody. Absolutely. All right. Felice, before we get out of here, I did want to note you were unable to join us for our year in review episode, looking back at some of the best uh, new restaurants, best meals, old favorites of 2022. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Was there anything that you wanted to share with the listeners? That, what was your what was your favorite new restaurant of 2022? Um, I had two. Um, and y'all did a great job covering all the good stuff. Um, Fin and Feathers, Gallon's Fin and Feathers was definitely one of my favorites because I've been waiting for it to come. And it gives me all the, a lot of things I like. The seafood, comfort food, um, a little bit of um, New Orleans mixed in with the Southern, you know, the Houston thing. And Burger Bodega because I love a well-balanced smash burger. Those were definitely two of my favorites of the year. All right. Felice, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. And I'll be right back with Emmanuel Chavez. I am joined this week by the chef owner of Totemo, a Mexican restaurant in Spring Branch, Emmanuel Chavez. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Uh, it's been a, an incredible last few months for us here at the, what some call it, the tiny restaurant, tiny hidden gem in Houston. So The, the dimly lit? Yes. I want to I talk about, and, and forgive me, I, I'm saying Totemo. Is it Totemo? Am I screwing that up? To be honest, we've I've let go of how people pronounce it. It's it's up to interpretation at this point. Either or is fine. Okay, okay. I want to talk about the restaurant, um, but I I do I I do like to start at the beginning. So just tell me a little bit about your background. How did you become interested in being a chef? So I migrated to the states with my family at the age of nine. Uh, both my parents worked at for the government in Mexico. And when they migrated here to the States, the, their first jobs or the first jobs available to both of them were at Tex-Mex restaurants, uh, which are still up and running. They're actually called Taqueria Tepatitlan. And we didn't, we didn't have the needs or family to hire babysitter uh, seatings or suitors or have us drop off with uh, friends of friends because we didn't know anybody. Uh, so we just stuck around. We had to follow them at work uh, after school. And that's basically my first introduction to the industry, just seeing the line cooks uh, listen to cumbias and chips being poured into baskets, salsas being poured from water jugs, uh, hearing fajitas sizzle or the lady chopping lettuce at the back, uh, screaming the enchiladas were ready and microwave sounds and I grew up in that environment, and by the by the age of fifteen, when I was old enough to to step into that environment, uh, I've actually got hired by 
my parents, one of the parent, one of the restaurants that my parents were were managing as a dishwasher, uh, and I started washing dishes there just to to earn some income and trying to like fit in into the whole uh, bad boy, uh, I guess. Yeah, it's gotta it's gotta kind of seem glamorous, right? When you're a kid, right? Like it's it's hard work, but it's like real grown up money. That's actually got to be like not a terrible thing when you're 16. Absolutely. Are you here with them talking about sex, drugs, uh, whistling? It's not a, it wasn't a kitchen brigade. There was no chefs. There's no systems. There's no protocols. It was you clock in, you talk shit, you do what you got to do. There's no recipes, just have fun and get out. And like you said, at that age, that was very interesting. And, and I just wanted to be a part of it. All right. So how did you evolve? Because obviously you didn't, you didn't stay as a dishwasher at a Tex-Mex restaurant. How did, how did you get maybe more serious about your craft? After college, not even after college, after high school, uh, my, my family gave me two ultimatums. It was either go to the restaurant and work full time um, as an actual chef for the corporate restaurant or go to culinary school. And it was around the time Top Chef uh, was, was becoming what it, what it is now. I think it was season five or season six. Uh, and just seeing, Mark, I think it was Michael Otagio being one of the first chefs with tattoos and, and the whole era of uh, molecular and sophistication and foams and all those sorts of things were being uh, starting to, to come out. And that really intrigued me in the beginning. I no longer was interested in the fajita aspect of a of the industry. I wanted to see what a foam tasted like, or what, because no one was doing it here in the city at that at that point, at least not to my knowledge. Uh, so I, I, I guess I started to take it a little bit more serious uh, after watching Top Chef and and open my my eyes to to what's really out there. All right. So did you go to culinary school in Houston, or did you go somewhere else? No, I, I did, but I went on for like two months and I dropped out. It was, the structure wasn't for me. Uh, luckily, I went to San Jacinto College and they had a culinary program. And luckily, I was curious enough to to ask questions uh, that I, I guess I caught the chef's instructor's attention. And he set me up with a stash at the, at the River Oaks Country Club uh, under uh, Charles Carroll. Okay. That was actually my first actual job. So you went to the River Country Club. Where did you go after that? After that, I stuck around a few country clubs around CD. I did Briar Club uh, for four years. Then I went in to become a sous chef at the, what's that, Uptown Hotel? Hotel Granduca. I was a sous chef at Hotel Granduca. I had no idea what I was doing. I was 24 years old. I was very eager to, to learn how to manage people. Uh, that was probably my best experience so far. Just the responsibility of managing and budgeting a hotel with no actual uh, industry or live experience was very challenging. Uh, and, and, that's and, getting, and getting a bunch of people who are older than you to, you know, respect you when you're, you know, basically a 24 year old dumbass has got to be it. Right. It, that didn't, that didn't go, it didn't go well for me. No, I wouldn't think so. All right. No, so when did you go to, when did you leave Houston? Cause I know you went to Seattle for a little while. It was that summer, that summer when I was 20, I was 25 years old, Instagram started becoming a huge thing. People were posting uh, pictures of food like crazy. The whole pop-up uh, era had already started in LA and New York, and it was making its way down here into Houston, thanks, thanks to uh, Dinner Lab and Aces of Taste. 
Um, so I took that little format and started hosting pop-ups at my house for eight people selling tickets on Instagram. And it was just three courses, super simple salad, uh, appetizer and, uh, and an entree, no desserts, straightforward. Uh, there were tickets for 55 bucks and I was just doing that during the weekends. And somehow a chef from Seattle, uh, started following my, my Instagram reached out to me. He's like, Hey, uh, I see a lot of Nordic. Uh, Noma cuisine or inspired dishes on your plating. If you're ever interested to actually learn where these things are coming from or, or how to take them to the next level, uh, come help, come and help me open a few uh, restaurant hotels here in Seattle. And honestly, I didn't even bother to to look him look him up. I took his word for it. I sold everything I had and drove across the country. I think mo- a month after we interacted on social media, and the rest was history. So tell me a little bit about that time in Seattle. Like, where were you working? What did you What did you take from that that experience in Seattle? In Seattle, I was working under Eric Rivera and Derek Schmick. Uh, they were both uh, French Laundry and Noma uh, alums. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of our sous chefs and chefs of cuisine had uh, experience in three Michelin star restaurants. So the restaurants that we worked at were Scout, Conversation, and the Bookstore. There were three under the same umbrella of hotels. So we were bouncing around a lot. Uh, two of them were tasting menus. And then the other one was more of a, a la carte, uh, but still had uh, a lot of fine dining aspects to the menu or whatnot. It was, when I tell you, it was the most humbling experience of my life. I kid you not. I walked into a kitchen with guys who had immense amount of talent, passion, and discipline that you wouldn't... I, I didn't think I was going to survive. There's a lot of times that I thought I was going to come back home with my head down because uh, of how brutal and how fast paced that city is. It's almost like a New York city, uh, but cleaner. And, and I want to say more, more efficient. Uh, there's a lot of money out there because of Amazon. So pain as well. The average pe- the average salary out there, it's think for a chef, it's probably like 90 K, which is crazy. Uh, cooks are making about 20 to $22 an hour. Uh, and I mean, it, it's incredible to see, to experience that, that lifestyle while being in our industry. Uh, it's just discipline that I've learned, to be honest. Uh, taking all shortcuts, uh, respecting, uh, respecting the actual kitchen uh, people, people's time, to be honest, diners' times. So. There's no, there's no right or wrong answer. There's no limits. There's no reason why we can't question everything that we do. Why still align the guests to have an amazing experience? It's Seattle definitely changed my life. Yeah. So, why did you decide to leave Seattle and come back to Houston? Well, in Seattle, when Harvey happened here in Houston, I was gathering. I was trying to make do a pop up out there in Seattle to. Uh, to send money or funds or canned goods uh, to family and friends out here. And when I was creating the, the pop-up, I had a cost on my ingredients uh, and whatnot and create a budget to submit it to the, to the hotel to, so they can allow me to see if it was uh, profitable for either or. And like I said, one of the chefs was, was uh, from Alinea. He was a creative director for them for seven years. He had unlimited resources he had traveled all over the world he had seen every every kitchen that you can think of that was on the top whatever list at that point he had been there he had cooked with those guys uh 
So when I in, I gave him my my list of ingredients and, and whatnot, he saw that I had maseca on them, and he ripped it apart. He actually took the list, shredded it apart, threw it in my face, and told me if I've ever wanted to be taken seriously in this industry, I need to I need to look up where I actually come from and learn how to cook my cuisine that represents who I am, and walked away. Right. I mean, so so just to be clear, right? You had worked at a Tex-Mex restaurant, but you never really made interior Mexican food or traditional Mexican food. You went to Seattle, you were doing New Nordic. I mean, you you know, the thought of like nixtamalizing corn, I guess, until that moment had never really been part of your your plan. I had no idea what nixtamalized was, to be honest. I, I would, I was, I've always, I worked under French, Italian, uh, Pakistanian influenced chefs. I've never actually looked into cooking Mexican food and I never took it seriously. And I was very naive and, and ignorant to say the least at that, at that stage in my life. Okay. So how did you go about educating yourself about Mexican cooking? Uh, so that happened. Uh, he gave me, he, I guess he felt bad. He took me out for drinks um, two, two weeks later, the chef, Eric, uh, and he gave me a, a, a little booklet of maseca. Uh, he told me all the ingredients that were not good for you and whatnot. And then he gave me a website to Macienda, which was an, at the time, or it is now, an LA-based uh, company that helps import uh, native seeds. He told me to, to reach out to them and start doing some research uh, to see where these seeds were coming from. And he gave me a list of like five, six chefs that were actually importing seeds. And he gave me just, he introduced me to all the information that was already out there. Uh, again, no one was doing it in Seattle at the, at the point. There was not a lot of Mexican uh, restaurants or mills and whatnot. We're talking about like almost seven years ago. Tortillas were not popping or they weren't popular like they are now. So it was, the resources were, the, the information was there, but it wasn't as easily as knocking at someone's restaurant and being, hey, can I come in Stasha and learn how to do this? Especially not in Seattle. Uh, so that, that kind of helped me and introduced me to a whole community of people who were actually doing it and have been doing it. And it was just like a, I don't know if you've ever gone on Reddit at one in the morning and you just, it's a, it's a black hole. It's a nonstop forms of information and you just, you just lose yourself in it. And that's kind of what happened with, with myself. Yeah, it's like, you know, you're listening to like a playlist on Spotify and you hear a song and you're like, Oh, that reminds me of this song and this song. And mm-hmm. like all of a sudden it's two hours later and you've got, you know, you're, you're way down a rabbit hole that you never even exactly. expected to be. Exactly. All right. So how did you kind of get from the, the reading stage to the cooking stage or, or, you know, how did you start to kind of develop the, the techniques that would ultimately form the basis of to Well, first of all, it was, I had, a, I had to be honest with myself, I had, had no money to, to buy machinery or whatnot. So I had to work on speed uh, to making tortillas. Whether Maseca, I, I was reading the information of nixtamalizing and where the seeds were coming from and all that, but I still had to actually do the work and the repetition and kind of like sports, right? You may not, it's like practice. You still have to practice, even though you don't, you don't start or play, but you still have to show up and, and do the reps, do the work, uh, read the plays, uh, read the, the team's place. So that's how I basically took it. Uh, I studied as much as I possibly could, but I still had to do reps and repetitions. So I wasn't, I took the last year that I was in Seattle, I told uh, myself that I was going to do family meal every day till I felt like it was time for me to, to move on. 
uh, using masa product or maseca just to kind of get a, a hand of how things tasted or or speed or whatnot. And that's basically what I did for my last year in Seattle, just made tortillas and tamales until people were tired of eating them. Uh, and I started posting that more on Instagram. I cleared my Insta. I always knew that Instagram was going to be a way for me to find investors. Uh, it was a way that I found a, a, a job opportunity and I've never had the opportunity to, to have uh, or type a resume because people would just hire me from word of mouth or introduce me to other people and kind of pull me to different sizes. So I, I always knew that Instagram was going to be a way for me to, to get my career further uh, somewhere or somehow. I just didn't know how. Uh, so I cleared my Instagram, started posting more pictures of tortillas and how to press them and little videos and whatnot. And that's when people started to reach out to me more. I'm like, hey, have you heard of this? This person, have you seen this thing? Uh, and then, like I said, I didn't realize there was already a community out there of chefs and, and home cooks that uh, basically gave me my my eye opener and introduction to the industry, to Mexican food. And it just, it took off after that. Who was particularly helpful? Like who kind of influenced your direction? Alvero, Vero Alvin. Uh, she used to teach at Rice University. She reached out to me on Instagram one day from Seattle and introduced me to a gentleman that was uh, starting a foundation to preserve seats, uh, special seats in, in Mexico. Uh, and he was charging classes or seminars via Zoom uh, for like $20 just to save up to help fund farmers in Mexico uh, to continue to, to, to seed and, and harvest uh, these seeds. And uh, after she made the introduction with him, that completely took me to that not only piqued my interest to an, another stage, it became almost obsessive at that point because I, I felt like I was... At this point, I was already like nine, 10 years into cooking. I was getting into that stage of my life. Like, what am I going to do? Like, for real, am I, do I really want to read tickets, uh, fire cheeseburger or fire two salmon or my whole life? Or do I really want to uh, start over or and, and make an impact and, and be inspired or inspire myself to, to keep going another 10 years? Talk about kind of coming home and, and, and developing this concept, because I think I think the first time I met you, it was like 2020 and you had started, uh, you were like, you were like one of these like little pandemic startups. Like I, I ordered a, uh, a Toyota from you. Right. Yeah. Um, so when we moved back or when I moved back to, uh, from Seattle, my first initial idea was to, okay, I need money. I had no money to start a restaurant. What are restaurant costs? Uh, People were not understanding the concept of what the demo was going to be. But to be fair, neither did I in its early stages. And that's something that I tell people all the time that please, whenever you feel like you think you know what you want on a restaurant or you want or you have this restaurant aspirations, write it down, cost it out. Uh, it's not the same thing as your vision and your actual goals are not going to match. You got to sacrifice your wants and needs and you got to work through a lot of a lot of things that you don't even think exist before you even open the doors of anything, any type of restaurant and any source of format. Uh, so find, actually writing down a business plan was the first thing. After doing that, finding some a location where I was able to do pop-ups to kind of like test the concept and have people introduce myself, kind of like reintroduce myself to the city, which was, it's kind of like your PR, so to speak, 
uh, just because you're young and there's Instagrams doesn't mean that people are going to connect with you. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of talent in, in this city. There's a, it's a massive city. Uh, how are you going to stand out? You know, you have your OGs, you have the, the second generation after those, and then you have the, the new guys, the upcoming guys. Okay. Like where do you fit in? Who are you going to reach out to? Do you have to reach out to anybody? Is this something that's some, it's already been done in the city? And if it has, how can you do it, do it better? So I just, I literally wrote a 20, 20 page uh, playbook uh, of how I wanted to tackle it. And everything that I wrote down, I felt that uh, my first pop-ups that I tried to do did not sell. I felt uh, the second location that I secured for a pop-up had no kitchen and I felt, uh, and I just went back, wrote everything down, wrote my failures, wrote what I what I did like, what I didn't like, how I can do it better. And little by little, I just started developing my own my own rhythm. Again, like we said, like we said, I had never cooked Mexican food ever. At I was doing tweezer food, uh, tasting menus in Seattle for most of my stay out there. Uh, everything was new to me. All those fl- flavor profiles or or the produce here in Houston was new to me. I was I was so used to like Seattle produce, Pacific Northwest produce. Then when I came back here the first year, I struggled to even put a menu together because I didn't know what anything tasted like. I didn't know what people wanted to eat. It was it was it was pretty bad. Okay, but I I mean obviously you're you figured it out. Was there like a moment when you started to feel like maybe this is maybe this is actually going to work out during the pandemic? Uh, so I actually through those uh, pop ups, I did secure a location to a restaurant downtown, and I did secure business partners that threw me a lot of money. Uh, and we were in the process of signing a lease. But because the location was so close to a hotel, we needed uh, we needed something on our lease had said that we weren't allowed to use a parking or the valet for the restaurant. And then we had to tap into a separate grease strap. There was just little things that you never, like as a cook, you don't think about that start to come up when you have an actual lease in front of you. Uh, so when we send so when my partner sent it to the, to the lawyers to like look it up and, and see if it was true or not, if we were going to be able to, to move forward. Uh, the pandemic hit and it completely negotiations shut down. My partners back down, the investors back down. And I had this sense of relief because I didn't, I didn't want to do it. I, didn't, I had a good feeling that that was not going to be a good location. Well, our, my partners and the investors, everybody had an opinion about what the restaurant was going to look like and it should be. And they, it had nothing to do with what I was envisioning doing. Uh, so just the, the simple fact that that host that then will be point one scrapped uh, was a huge relief. Uh, it gave me clarity. It gave me peace of mind. And then it, it kind of just, it helped me really understand that, that a foundation and I use the word foundation a lot because at that stage we had, had not produced one tortilla that I was proud of. And we were about to open a fucking 80 seater restaurant in downtown. Uh, yeah. So I was yeah. like, okay, this is, this is not going to work. So I went back to, to square one. I'm like, I'm just going to learn how to make tortillas from scratch. Once I feel like I'm good, then I can start again and thinking about maybe opening something up. Yeah. Cause you, I mean, you built slowly, you know, you got into urban harvest at first it was just tortillas and you started doing some brunch items. Um, I mean, how important was that phase to your development of this concept? Without urban harvest, we don't exist for sure. A thousand percent. And I say that with the most respect. 
when Tyler reached out to us about selling tortillas at, at the market, I, I honestly thought it was a joke. I thought he was playing with us. I just didn't understand why he would think that a guy selling tortillas from his apartment will kind of like make sense to sell. I didn't, I didn't think he understood or knew that I was making tortillas at, from my apartment, from my seven, 700 square foot apartment in Montrose. Yeah, I'm going to say that he didn't because there's, there's rules about, you know, using a commercial kitchen and all that kind of, but yes, I, he probably didn't know that. Right. So um, when we filed the permits for that, then we had a, uh, we, we had a request or borrow or rented a ghost kitchen for us to be able to, to get into the market. But like you said, the pandemic happened. We used Instagram again to like start selling items here and there, deliver them ourselves within a, a limited or a reasonable area. And again, that fell completely because people were very, there's one thing about Houston. If you want to open a, a restaurant in Houston, you got to have the, the community support you. I don't even think they care if you're talented or not. If they, if they click with you and if they, they believe in you, they'll come out and support. And I, I feel like that's kind of what happened with us. I knew that our tortillas in the beginning were not great, but I feel like people were excited to see the process being made at someone trying to make them at home. Uh, and learning all, along the way with them that people were starting to buy them. And we started selling like four or five dozen in the beginning uh, and then six, seven, and then you gradually became more than we can chew. And that's kind of, we started like, okay, we can't just sell tortillas because we can't keep up. Let's do items. Let's let's sell tlayudas. Let's sell sopes to kind of like offset the, the demand on the tortillas. Uh, and I think that's how I'm, I met you. That's how I met Matt. And that's how Tyler somehow ended up with a package of tortillas at his home, at his house. Right. Because, you know, through Matt, you kind of get to the, the restaurant space, um, the black lab space in Montrose. And that, that's kind of where this, this concept really started to take shape, right? Cause you could, you could make the tortillas in the kitchen and then you could start doing the tasting menus. What do you, I guess, maybe talk about kind of that, that time of, of getting that, the restaurant component off the ground and, and kind of how it led you to, to where you are now. Well, I think after the, after we met Matt, we had already started, started the urban harvest and we were there for like two, three months. Uh, so that was already taken off. We were already making a hundred dozen, uh, almost up to 200 dozen tortillas on a weekly basis. So, and that itself was a challenge because again, no one knew who we were. Some people don't, a lot of people care, but there was a lot of people that will throw their money at us and will tell us that this is not authentic, that we're completely bastardizing our, our culture for charging 77 cents a tortilla. Uh, there was people telling us that we're not going to last, that this is just a face like sourdough. Uh, people, I'm not kidding, people will tell us and tell us to fuck off, that there's no way in hell that we'll be here next year, that this is just a little pandemic uh, fl- fleek or flu. And I still remember sometimes Megan, because Megan will go to the markets with me. She'll look at me and you can see the, the emotion of like, damn, I, I don't think we're going to be here next year. And I will tell her like, don't, don't worry about it. Like people are entitled to their opinions. Uh, we don't have to reciprocate. We don't have to engage. Just take it with a grain of salt. Right. It's, it's about, yell that, yell a- that by strangers sucks, right? Like, it, you know, that's, that's uncomfortable. Uh, right. But but at the same time, you were also getting a lot of positive feedback too. Oh, for sure. We got into the Chronicle, then the, the whole Gordon Ramsay started. Uh, and those two 
things kind of meshed together and in, created our wholesale account to ref, to to other restaurants and that itself the whole after that then that's when Matt actually came in and he's like okay uh, there's a space available for you guys to to take this wholesale aspect of it into the next phase or push it until it, it's no longer a thing. Uh, let me know if you want to use it. Uh, but there's a catch. There's another guy. There's a guy making ice cream from his apartment, kind of like you guys. Uh, the catch is that you guys have to share the space. And we were like, whatever it takes for us to continue this momentum that we've built, we'll do it. And that's how we made Josh through Matt. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, just for the audience, just to sort of clarify, the Matt is Matt Harris, who's who's on the show all the time. Um, Josh is Josh DeLeon of Underground Creamery. Correct. I mean, that, you know, beyond whatever sort of personal friendship you guys, it's sort of amazing that you guys hit it off. Um, but But then you started doing these night markets and kind of fostering this whole community of creators and it really it, it felt like kind of a special moment it really was i mean do you have like a favorite memory from from those markets or or because because it really it, it it really like if looking at kind of now it's like you know it started it it contributed to the growth of pudgies it contributed to the growth of neo it contributed you know all of these kind of businesses that are are thriving in 2023 got a real boost from those those night markets you guys did in 2020. Oh, for sure. Uh, the markets happen literally because the night, we wanted to throw a house party, to be honest, to be fair. To be completely transparent, we wanted I wanted to throw a party at the Black Lab. Uh, I wanted to, to invite as many people as I wanted. I wanted people to have fun. I wanted to be unlimited drinking, music, and all that. I wanted the community to come together. Uh, but that idea got shut down completely by Matt. He's like, well, hold up. <laughs> this is a space. This is a, a viral space. It's not our space. There's there's two protocols. That we, it's a ghost kitchen, but there's protocols and people that we gotta ask permission to. And I was like, okay, well, what if we make it almost like a market at night? Uh, I understand. Like I knew there was markets already, uh, but but not like this. You know, like you said, we we were very smart to use Josh as clickbait. He's very he's charming. He's a hell of a promoter, uh, underground creamery in the best ice cream in our city. So it, he was very hesitant at first to do them because he didn't want to get involved in the process of filing permits and all that and having to be responsible for others' vendors' success. So like, okay, Josh, just promote it. We'll take care of the rest. Uh, then Megan came in. She formalized it for us. She made sure that, to be fair, Megan, my partner, she's the only reason anything is possible. She... That girl is amazing. If we ever get a James Beard nomination, her name should be on it and it shouldn't be mine. She was a reason that took our mark, little hidden markets and created them what they were. She did all the, the graphic design. She made sure all the vendors had permits. She made sure that everyone was on part. Everyone got paid. Uh, Matt was the, the one facilitating the whole thing. Uh, he knew of the list. He knew what we needed. Uh, he made them better. Uh, we kept moving them around. We went from five vendors to six vendors to eight vendors to, I think we hosted the top, the guys from Top Chef that season while the season was still airing. Uh, at that time, we didn't know that Gabe was the cha- the winner, uh, but he was out there with us cooking in a parking lot like, like nothing. And I don't think I've ever seen a parking lot so full at a market like those 
Yeah, I I was there that night, and it was yeah, it was like Gabe Morales was at one ten, and mm-hmm. Don Burrell was at another. Sasha and, was there, right? Sasha was there, and it's just like, it's like okay, this is this is pretty intense. The neo guys were doing you know uh, nigiri sets. I mean, like it was bonkers. Um, yeah. All right, so we've we've rambled on for like you know twenty minutes already, and we we still haven't really talked about the restaurant. You you opened about a year ago, um, in this little tiny space next to Carbach Brewery. I mean, what's it been like? I mean, how's it how's it going? How do you kind of feel about uh, the response you've received? I mean, you you were on basically, you know, every local best year restaurant list of the year. You 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 got an Esquire. I, I mean, you 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 know, for for all the people who told you to fuck off at the farmers market. You know, this is the giant middle finger right back to them. I guess yeah, you can say that. I mean, it's it's only been one year. We take it with a grain of salt. Uh, we've always done bas- the idea of the restaurant was always to be one of the best restaurants in the city. Never in our wildest dream did we think that people were gonna believe that year one. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that we believed it ourselves for the years to come. We know it's a long row. We know it's a long. Five years, it's a lot. We don't want to burn out. We don't want to feel like we can chew more than we that we can. So we kept the space small. Uh, the space used to be a juice bar. And I don't think people understand that, that we've taken what it used, a juice bar used to be into a fine dining destination Mexican restaurant. So that itself is a challenge on its own. Uh, the fact that it's next to a church, next to a donut shop, uh, the fact that it's that we don't have any investors at this point or any big name chef promoting us or helping us out was a challenge on its on its own. It's literally been blood, tears, and sweat that we were able to build this this business and this restaurant. And as soon as we started hiring the proper people to help us believe in that vision, I think we took it to another step. The first few times or the first three months that we opened, we were really bad. We were probably one of the worst restaurants in the world. Uh, but we never gave up. We again it's it's repetition. It's believing it's discipline. It's understanding the demographic. Uh, there's a reason why we do brunch, even if we don't like it, because we're here until 1.30 in the morning, sometimes on Saturdays, and we have to show up the next day. It's understanding your demographic, your location, and your identity as a cook or a chef. And I think making tortillas, and at, at this point, now that I'm almost three years into them, making delicious and great tortillas has given me a confidence to, to keep pushing and keep trying and keep learning and just keep going as, as in my own pace, I'm in no rush to anything. Yeah, talk about kind of creating these menus because there's so many different, you know, sopas, quesadillas, tacos, you know, all with different fillings, all with different ingredients. Like, how do you, how do you sort of conceive of these progressions that that, you know, obviously they have to satisfy the customer, but but you you also have like a, you know, an ethos of of showcasing all these different sort of corn-based preparations? I think it took a little bit of inspiration from what Johnny was doing and inspiration Johnny wrote, uh, former Indigo. Uh, we want to tell a story, but we don't want to feel like when you dine with us that you're being sh- slapped with information that you're probably not going to remember and you're probably not going to hear or care for, to be honest, to be fair, during your, during your meal. Like we want, we want you to know and we want you to walk away with a sense of, okay, these guys, they know exactly what they're doing and where they're sourcing 
and they're not shoving it in my face, I'm also able to to have a conversation with whoever whomever I'm dining with. So that was very important for us. Uh, as far as ingredients, we wanted to keep it as local as possible. I think people think or people want to put us in a Mexican box. And to be fair, we are. I am a Mexican chef. It is a Mexican mace concept. All the mace is imported from Mexico. But we're not a Mexican restaurant by no means. I mean, we're a Houston restaurant. Everything that we source as far as produce, it's from within cities. I think the only thing besides the mace, it's a caviar from from Holland and the Campachi from Baja California. Other than that, it's Texas produce, you know, Texas. That's a Texas restaurant inspired by mace. So it's mace driven. That's how we like to identify ourselves. And the two settings have to match, you know, brunch. It's basically the the hybrid of, of the tastings. All of our mise en place from the tastings end up at brunch. So it allows us to have a, a low food cost, uh, low on labor, because the servers are actually trained cooks on Sundays uh, to execute these this items that require no no actual like intents or tweezers. It's literally just muscle shape. It's heated up, see, taste it, make it taste good, and have people enjoy it. Well, and and I I like the the brunch. You know, I was just there a couple weeks ago because it gives people an on ramp. Right. Like not everybody necessarily wants to spend $125 on a tasting menu, not not even from like a value, not not questioning the value of it, but but just that, you know, I recognize that's beyond the budgets of some people. But a lot more people, you know, might like a $10 quesadilla or a $12 order of masa pancakes. And and it gives them the chance to kind of visit you and decide for themselves, like whether to splurge on the tasting menu. Yeah, no, it's two different demographics, like you said, for sure. Uh, and I think we definitely, the moment that we identify that, we took advantage of it. It's the same thing with the taco takeovers when we invite people to come here. It's a whole different demographic that people that actually enjoy eating tacos that don't mind waiting in line for whatever amount of hours. It's something that people enjoy. It's like people ask us all the time, how come we don't do the night markets anymore? Well, now we have the takeovers and it's the same amount of waiting time. So, and yeah. that's less hassle. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, you've been kind of it. I try not to take you too seriously on Instagram. You know, yeah, I don't, don't. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, I, I, th- I don't think that's smart. But you have been sort of talking a little bit about, you know, being nominated for a James Beard Award. Um, obviously, any restaurant in Houston that aspires to be the best rest among the best restaurants in the city. I mean, is that a, is that a serious aspiration for you? Like, what are you? What do you feel like you have to do to get to that level? It's definitely a serious aspiration, for sure. I, I told the team the other day uh, during our pre-shifts, let's, let's be completely realistic with each other. We probably won't be nominated uh, in a couple months, 2023. We are barely on people's radars, but there's no reason why we can't be on 2024. There's no reason why we shouldn't be at, the, at that stage, almost getting two years, one of the best restaurants uh, out there, uh, but we gotta we gotta believe and we gotta work and we gotta fix our mistakes and we gotta continue to to create what we've created and and share with people. I think sharing the knowledge, sharing uh, the process of what it takes to to open a business on your own, it's what's gonna get us get us there. Uh, we definitely have people cheering for us. Uh, we're starting to cook with more James B. nominator uh, nominees. 
we started last year. This year, our takeovers are all James Rear nominees. Uh, there's a few winners out there on, the, on our takeovers coming to the city. We have a few collaborations with a lot of uh, James Beer uh, winners. So I think just being am among that group will, will put us on a whole different light. So we can you hopefully. Wanna, you want to give us a preview? You want to you want to tease uh, who's coming who's coming to town? No, not yet. But I'm, I'm sure people. If people liked Alex Vermont and people went nuts for that, I think people are going to be extremely pleased with uh, this year with our takeovers. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do feel like that was a really important moment for you professionally to have someone of Alex's character, uh, caliber rather, talent who's worked at, who worked at Pujol and, and you know, to for him to recognize you as a peer and to want to cook with you and, and collaborate with you, I think that that speaks very well of, of kind of where you are on this path. I think, yeah, for sure. I think that it definitely gave us uh, the confidence uh, to keep pushing and to keep learning and to, to understand that the foundation of a restaurant, it's always going to be a tortilla and we're going to pride ourselves in the tortilla. You've been to the space. We are no, we don't shy away from saying that it's not the prettiest space. Like I mentioned earlier, it used to be a juice bar. We don't have investors. We're not going to spend ridiculous amount of money to make it appealable to people who want to come for just for Instagram and for a moment. But what we've created, it's created a space where people are proud to say that demo is in Houston city. It's in Houston, Texas, and it's the best or one of the best representatives as far as Mexican or tortillas that we know of on this side of the border. And we take a lot of pride in that. And I think that solidified the whole Alex dinner solidified that for us. Right. And then, so, I mean, you know, you're growing, right? You're, you're adding uh, a third night of dinner service. You're adding Saturday lunch in addition to Sunday brunch. But but what are your aspirations for the next year? I mean, how do you, you know, how do you get to that James Beard nominee level? I think by being more accessible to people, which is why we decided to do the other two services. We're starting, uh, like you said, tastings on Thursdays and lunch on the 19th. 14 and the 19th of this month are the additional services. I think that's going to allow people to experience the, the space and the, the maze at a faster rate than just on the weekends and whatnot. And we're bringing back the the takeovers and when we're not going to stop. They're going to be two per month consistently all throughout the year. Uh, and like I said, all of, all, of, all of our guests are either nominees or actual winners. So that should definitely help out. All right. Well, Emmanuel, this has been, this has been really great. Before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Usually I ask chefs what their favorite ingredient is. I think we've, we've got yours pretty well figured out. So inspired by your Instagram, let me ask you, what's your favorite Drake song? Oh, Lucy. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Uh, actually, Drake. <laughs> He's not a band, but right. first concert. Performer, yeah. yeah. What, is, uh, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Oh, Whataburger. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Uh, Brian Ching. When you're going out for tacos, what is your what is your favorite taco filling? Oh, I don't eat tacos, but you give me a Cuban and I'm the happiest guy. Or <laughs> any sandwich. Fair enough. All right, uh, Emmanuel, give us the the website and the social media for Tatemo. Uh, it's info at Tatemo. Houston.com, the website that's for the website, and then for the Instagram, uh, the demo at HTX, 
that comp. Totemo, Totemo HDX on Instagram, uh, totemohdx.com, right, is the website. Correct. Correct. All right. Thanks again. Thanks for doing this. Eric, thank you very much for having me. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.